Good morning. Please stand for the reading of God's word. The scripture is from Exodus 28, 1 through 18. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and the half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he told, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet as if it were a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven of clear, for clearness. And he did not lay his hands on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses read with his assistant, so Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud, that the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a, a devouring fire, on the top of the mountain to the sight in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. This is God's word. If you'd like to follow this morning's message in the scripture, it is Exodus chapter twenty four, and you can find in the Pew Bibles on page sixty four. Do you have a relationship with God? That is, do you have a relationship with the only one true God? Or is your belief more in one who is fabricated in order to fit our lifestyles and our desires? Let's pray. Our Father, we are all at various places uh, in our journeys with you. Some have truly seen you for who you are, bowed down before you in worship. Some of us don't believe you exist. Some of us worship 
false gods. And some of us do fabricate gods according to the way we would like to see them. Lord, I pray for each person here today who wants to know truth, who wants, who is open to, to, to knowing you, that we would hear your word today and would establish those who believe in you, challenge those who don't believe in you, bring truth to those who don't understand you as fully as they should. But Lord, meet each of us, for we all need you. In Christ we pray, amen. The God of the universe wants an intimate relationship with you. It's why he sent his son into the world to give us eternal life. But eternal life is much more than getting your ticket to heaven punched. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, said this, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is about knowing God. God's passion is for you to know him. And life is ultimately about a relationship with God, knowing the true God from which the way we live flows. Remember... Uh, a couple sermons ago when Pastor Brandon talked about a common view of religion as seeing various sides of the elephant. Some religions look at the side and say, this is a, God is like a wall. Others feel the legs and say, no, God is like a tree. Others might feel the tail and say, no, God is like uh, a rope. And this is to explain the fact that we may not all get God right, but that's okay. We just have various views on God and see different aspects of him. But as Pastor Brandon brought out, he said, what if the elephant could speak and tell you, I am not a wall, I am not a tree, I am not a rope, I am an elephant, then we would have no excuse for getting God wrong. Well, God has spoken and he has revealed himself to us. And our choice is to, to understand that God or to ignore him and fabricate one to our liking. Now, it seems that the idea of fabricating God has been with us for a very, very long time. Isaiah spoke about those who built idols to represent God. He said this in Isaiah 40. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare him with? An idol? A craftsman crafts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for its silver chains. 
he who's too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. And he seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that may not fall over. And so we see that there's been a tendency for thousands and thousands of years to try to create your own God. In fact, Israel, in a few chapters from now, is going to do the same thing. They're making a covenant with God, building a relationship with Him in chapter 24 that we're going to look at today. And at the end of this chapter, we see that Moses goes up into the mountain for 40 days. And he's going to come back with revelations, further revelations of God and how to relate to God. And yet, the people can't wait the 40 days and say they go to Aaron and they demand that he make a God that will lead them through the rest of the wilderness. Aaron obliges, he gathers their gold, he makes a golden calf and he declares... This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. We have a penchant for creating God as we would like him to be. We hear it in various conversations today. Some people might say, well, I don't really belong to any religion but I'm a spiritual person. In other words, what they're saying is, I don't look for any revelation of God and what God might say about himself, but I have a relationship with some kind of inner feeling that I have that fits, uh, fits the moment. Other conversations, I've heard people respond to a conversation about the revealed God, and they would say, well, that's nice that you believe that way, but I prefer to think of God as... And in that conversation, it's like they're saying, my preference about God somehow determines who God is. No, God has revealed himself. Brandon has also brought out on a number of occasions the fact that a sociologist named Christian Smith has studied our upcoming generation and he has seen a thread and a trend of looking at God as moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, moralistic means that God wants us to be moral, he wants us to be kind, he wants us to be nice to each other. Therapeutic means that God wants us to be happiness and really life is all about our comfort and our security. Deism means that uh, we believe there is a God, but that God's very distant. He's not demanding in any way. And if he is around, it's really to fill our needs. This is the God that's being created today. Now, I bring this up because as we look at this chapter, we're seeing that Israel is forming that relationship, that covenant relationship with God 
And they need to understand whom they are coming into relationship with. And what we're actually going to see as God is revealed in this chapter, that this revelation of God conflicts greatly with moralistic therapeutic deism. And let's call that MTD for the rest of the sermon for brevity's sake. All right. So, uh, let's get the backdrop here. The backdrop of this chapter is that back in Genesis chapter 12, God chose a man to be a light to the world, that he, he would build a nation through that man, Abraham. And he'd build a relationship with Abraham's people, and they would be a testimony of God to show the world the one true God. In Genesis chapter 17, God says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between you, me and you, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be your God and to be your offspring after you. So God makes the covenant. He tells Abraham, the covenant's with you and your children and your children's children for posterity. That covenant is passed down through Isaac and through Jacob and ultimately through the 12 sons of Jacob who become the 12 tribes of Israel. Those 12 sons go down to Egypt during a famine, but in Egypt, The nation turns against them and makes them slaves. And so we have almost a 500-year period from Abraham to Moses where the people don't truly have much of a growing understanding of who their God is. God meets Moses and he delivers Egypt through Moses. They cross the Red Sea, freeing themselves from the slavery to Egypt. They go out into the wilderness. They have various experiences with God. And now they come to Mount Sinai. Where they hear the commands of God. And now they make the covenant. They confirm the covenant personally with God. What we're going to see as this covenant unfolds is three truths about God that conflict with contemporary thinking about God. The first is God is superior to us. Life is about God. It's not about us. Secondly, God makes the provision for us to have a relationship with him. We are not born into a relationship. We don't come into a relationship with God by being moral. God provides the way. And thirdly, God determines morality. He is the one who says what is right and wrong. It is not our personal purview to tell ourselves or our world what is right, what is wrong. So, let's take a look. First, God is superior. 
God calls us to worship him. He calls us to glorify him. And he calls us to live for him. And this is the opposite of what many people believe today. Christian Smith explained current beliefs. What appears to be the actual dominant religion among U.S. teenagers is centrally about feeling good, happy, secure, and at peace. It's about attaining subjective well-being, being able to resolve problems, and getting along amiably with other people. So the dominant religion is, it's really about me and my happiness, and that's what God wants foremost, and that's what he's going to try to make happen. Um, I don't know how many of you saw the movie a while back called A Walk to Remember. Walk to Remember, evangelicals got fairly excited about this movie because it was about an evangelical girl in a school who really was trying to follow God, and she stood out from the crowd uh, because she was following God. And in that movie, she falls for a, a guy who does not know the Lord. Her father is a pastor, so he gets into a debate with her about whether or not she should be dating someone who is not a Christian. And he finally pulls the trump card and he says, you may not care about what I say or think, but you should care about God's opinion. And her response is, I think God wants me to be happy. So the idea of we, we don't need to look at the word of God to see what is right. It's all about what I think makes me happy. My wife encountered that attitude in one of her classes, Boston College. Somehow the discussion got onto abortion, and one of the young women said, well, I think God would want me to have an abortion because God wants me to be happy. And if I think an abortion is going to make me happy, then that's exactly what God wants for me. Very common, prevalent attitude today. It's about me, not about God. Now, it is true. God wants our joy. He wants us to be filled with joy. Jesus told his disciples, these things I say to you, that your joy may be complete. He prayed it for all of us. In his high priestly prayer, he said, I pray that their joy may be complete. He wants that joy, but the problem with, with thinking today is people think the path to joy or happiness is getting what they want, and that's what God's going to give them. In reality, the pathway to joy is getting Jesus Christ. Because he precedes the word about joy with saying, I want my joy to be in you so that your joy may be complete. True joy is having the same joy that Jesus Christ has in perfect union with God the Father whereby he glorifies God the Father, he serves God the Father, he obeys God the Father. He lives for God the Father. And he had perfect joy 
the kind he wants us to have. As Israel traveled through the wilderness, it seems as though when they come to Mount Sinai, they pretty much are MTD people. Imagine being in their shoes. You're a slave in Egypt, and what does God do? He brings ten plagues, and then he opens the Red Sea, and he frees you. God's there for us. Then they go into the wilderness, and there's all there is is bitter water. And what do they do? They complain. Why? Because they expect, God, you're supposed to be making us happy. This water. And God purifies the water so they can drink it. Then their, their stomachs are grumbling. They're worried about food. And so their mouths grumble as well. Why? Because God's supposed to be making it right for me. God provides the food. Now they're thirsty again. And what are they doing? They are grumbling because God's supposed to be there for me. And what does God do? He's there for them again. He brings them water out of a rock. And one easily start to think, yeah, this is all about me. God is, God is serving me. Until they come to Mount Sinai. And we read as they approach Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, it says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all of the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in the fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke. And God answered him in thunder. All of a sudden they have a new picture of God. God is majestic. God is powerful. God is scary. God is holy. We see the same thing coming in this covenant. As this covenant is made, God sets the terms. He doesn't come to the people as equals. He comes to the people as superiors. He sets the terms. Chapter 24, verses 1 and 2. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the mountain, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with me. Moses says, who can approach the mountain when they can approach the mountain? God makes that determination. God gave them his commandments for them to follow. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words of the Lord has spoken, we will do. It is God who asked for sacrifices. Verse 5, And he sent young men to the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. He, God, received worship. 
verse 4. Moses arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Every time you see God doing something, meeting people, they build an altar because it pictures worship of God. God is our superior. Our lives are about glorifying Him. He is a loving God who invests Himself in our lives, but He is also a holy God who calls us to follow Him and obey Him and serve Him. It is, from our perspective, all about God. Another author talking about MTD said this, their God is not demanding. He actually can't be since his job is to solve our problems and make people feel good. In short, God is something like a divine butler and cosmic therapist. He's always on call, takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves, and does not become too personally involved in the process. That is not the God we see on Mount Sinai. Yes, we saw him helping in the wilderness, but that's only a part of God. He is a God before whom we should tremble because he is holy. So, God is superior. We see that in this passage. We also see that we need to accept God's provision in order to have a relationship with him. God wants to have the relationship. Some people think we're born with a relationship, and maybe or maybe not we can mess it up some, but it's natural for every person to have a relationship. How many times have I heard people say, I've been born a Christian? There are others who think everybody's in. Universalists say everybody's in. It doesn't matter what you think about God or if you even believe in God. And then there are the moralists who say, well, those who have the relationship with God are those people who are good and nice and kind. And they're the ones who have a relationship with God. What we see in this passage is, no, that is not the case. God is forming this relationship with Israel or he's confirming it with Israel, forming it with this generation of Israel in a covenant that Israel had to come to and agree with. And within this covenant, God makes provision for them so they can have a relationship with him. In fact, as we look at the ceremony, there's a ceremony here in this covenant. And, I mean, God put it in this form because it really matches Near Eastern uh, treaties and covenants. I'm going to take it because it perfectly fits our marriage ceremonies. Because in, in a sense, that's what God is calling Israel into. He's calling us, us Israel and calls us into a marriage-like relationship where we become one with him and we come into union with him. And so we look at the ceremony here. 
And first of all, there's a minister who presides over the ceremony. That's God's chosen man, Moses. Next, there are vows early in the service. Very often we have those in our wedding services where we say, uh, do you pledge to marry? And you go, yes, I do. So too, we see that in Exodus 24, verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. Then all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words of the Lord have spoken, we will do. I do. Then we see the bride and the groom standing together. Verse 14b. <clears throat> Moses arose early in the morning. He built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. So the altar represents God in his commitment to the people. The 12 pillars represent Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel and their commitment to God. Then you have a later vows just before the pronouncement. Just like we do when we ask a person to repeat after me. I, I, Bruce, take you, Karen, and we make that commitment. So, too, we have that in, uh, in chapter 24 where it says, Then he, Moses, took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing of the people, and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. Yes, I do. And then we have the solemnization of the ceremony, similar to what we do with the ring. With this ring, I thee wed. In this case, it's with this blood, I thee wed. Moses took half of the blood, put it in the basins. Half of the blood he threw against the altar. And he took the blood and threw the blood on the people also. So what he's saying is it is the blood of the covenant on God and on Israel that solemnizes the commitment one to another with this ring I thee wed. Then you have the pronouncement. Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The blood of the covenant that has brought us together. In marriages, we use the ring. Why did God use blood? First of all, he used blood because it speaks of the seriousness of this commitment. That wakes us up. That this commitment is going to cost blood. But we gain the best understanding by looking at the two sacrifices from which the blood come. Sacrifice of the burnt offering and peace offering. The burnt offering, we will, we will see later, is made for the atonement of sin. Now what does it mean, atonement? Atonement means covering. And what it's saying is, our sin stands between us and God. 
because he is a holy God. He cannot overlook sin the way we overlook sin. Otherwise, he would not be holy. He would not be just. He would not be true to who he is. He would not be God. So God cannot embrace our sin and our rebellion against him. The wages, the penalty for sin is death. And so in this case, we have most likely a bull. The oxen are a reference to the peace offering. Sacrifice, the death of the bull, represented by the sprinkling of his blood, the pouring out of his blood, as the substitute to cover, to make atonement for that sin. So, me who's a sinner, with sin in between me and the holy God, that sin is taken away through that sacrifice, through God's provision. It is not the act of the people sacrificing that brings them into relationship with God. It is the death of the bull, of the animal. The peace offering is a free will offering. It's an offering that people give in response to God's grace and his goodness. And it takes many forms. It can take the form of a vow where we are so thrilled with who God is, what God has done for us, we vow to say, live for him. It can be in the form of thanksgiving offering where we are so grateful for what God has done for us that we offer him this animal in thanksgiving. Or it can be a free will offering. In, in a sense, a gift, just like we give gifts to our spouses or our loved ones. We love God because he first loved us, and so we gift him this animal, and we eat together with him over that. So the blood of the covenant is God's provision and people's response. But we know an animal cannot take the place of a person. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away our sin. For us to be cleansed of our sin, we would have to have a person be that substitute. And it had to be not just person like me even if I was sinless that wouldn't be enough because I could only take the place of one other person it would have to be a person who was infinite in his personhood it would have to be God becoming man to be the substitute for all of us and that's exactly what Jesus Christ did he's God the son he took on flesh he lived the perfect life. He paid the penalty for our sin. And before he died on the cross, he said to his disciples, this is my blood in the new covenant, shed for the remission of your sin, for your forgiveness. So this sacrifice 
near Mount Sinai is really a picture of what God was going to do for us in Jesus Christ. What we celebrated today looks back at what Christ did for us. The cup representing the blood of Jesus Christ. The covenant Israel made was looking forward to what Jesus Christ would do for us. The pathway to God, if we want to have a relationship with God, it comes through the blood of the covenant, the blood of Jesus Christ. And I know that sounds very narrow-minded today because we want to believe that every way, every religion, every thought, every nice person is a way to God. But we see that is not the case. To have a relationship with God, we must embrace God's provision for us. I remember, uh, gosh, a year after I became a Christian, I was working with uh, Vista Volunteers. And my director wanted me to re-up for another year. She knew I was religious, and I was explaining that I really am going to a Christian seminar, five-week seminar, IBS, in order to grow in my Christian faith. And so I, I said, I know you want this to be the most important thing in my life, but Jesus Christ is, so I have to go, I'm going to this training. And... She said, well, I hope you're, you know, you're not one of those, you, you become a preacher or something. I hope you're like a, a social gospel preacher and you don't try to convert people. <laughs> and I said, I asked, or I said to her, well, it must seem that I'm very narrow to say that Christ is the only way. And she very kindly said, Yes, yes, I do. So I asked her, do you know why Christians say Jesus is the only way? She said, no. It's because my sin separates me from God. The only religion where God paid the price for my sin to take it out of the way is Christianity. Christ is the only way because Christ is the one who died for my sin. Do you think she believed that moment? No, but we pray because he is the way. He is the provision. God is superior. Christ is the way. And God defines morality. God is not therapeutic. He is not deistic. He is not moralistic. Christian Smith again talked about MTD moralism and said, this believes that central to living a good and happy life is being a good moral person. That means being nice, kind, pleasant, respectful, and responsible. Working on self-improvement, taking care of one's health, and doing one's best to be successful. Actually, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Being moral, nice, kind, thinking of others, self-improvement. I mean, this fits what God wants for us. He wants us to be moral, kind, nice. He wants us to develop our gifts to reach the fullest potential of who we are. So what's wrong with this view? Well, first, it's wrong if 
People think this is the way you get to God. As we saw with the peace offering, living a life for God is a response to what God has done for us, not a way to God. But the big problem is the definition of moral. What is a moral person? Who defines morality? And humanity has a problem with this question from the time of Adam and Eve. We want to define morality for ourselves. So when we go back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve took of a tree that really spoke of who defines morality. Who determines what is good and evil, what is right and wrong, what is moral and immoral? And God said, this is my tree. And Eve said, no, this is my tree. I will be like God. Meaning, I will determine good and evil for myself. We see it popping up over and over again in the book of Judges, which is a disaster, the way people lived in that book. And it said over and over again, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. It's the same today. We haven't changed. What we're seeing isn't anything tr different when people say, I have my own truth, I have my own morality, you have yours. Uh, Tim Keller writes about uh, conversations he would have after various uh, worship services. He says this, For many years after each morning and evening service, I remained in the auditorium for about an hour to field questions. Hundreds of people stayed for the give-and-take discussions. One of the most frequent statements I heard was, every person has a right to define right and wrong for himself or herself. I always responded to the speakers by asking is there anyone in the world right now doing things you believe they should stop doing, no matter what they personally believe about the correctness of their behavior? They would invariably say, oh, yes, of course. Then I would ask, doesn't that mean that you do believe there is some kind of moral reality that is there that is not defined by us that must be abided by regardless of what a person feels or thinks. Almost always the response to the question was a silence, either a thoughtful or a grumpy one. The most often asked questions is, can't I define morality for myself? And we see very clearly in this passage, in this section of Scripture, no, God defines morality. Chapter 20. God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. As often said, it's not the Ten Suggestions. Not the Ten Ideas to Ponder to see if you would embrace them for your personal morality. He gives Ten Commandments. The next three chapters, he fleshes out how those commandments speak into the very issues of their lives. In this passage... Verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered and said, what the Lord has spoken, we will do. 
Verse 7, again in this covenant, so twice in this covenant, he took the book of the covenant. He read it in the hearing of the people and they say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. God has the right to determine morality for us. Many people struggle with the fact that God has commands. That God does say what's right and what's wrong. People think that's limiting when in reality it's liberating. If I went over to the piano right now and played any keys I wanted to play Many people would say, he has freedom at that piano. And you would be sticking your fingers in your ears and saying, I wish he did not have freedom at that piano. However, if I took lessons for years, if I practiced for hours and hours, if I've learned music And I accomplished following the rules of music. I could become free to play any piece on that piano I would like. God's rules are not restricting. They are liberating when we realize he is the one who is the author of life. He is the one who has put life together. He knows how life should be lived. He knows how people will thrive in their lives. He made commands not to say, I'm dominant over you. He made commands ultimately to show us how to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. And I don't know many people who are against love. But God's the one who knows how to love and how we should love. The second problem people have with God's commands is it leads them to think that God is domineering. And what they miss is that following God's commands is a natural flow of a loving relationship with him. Again, Tim Keller put it this way. For a love relationship, there must be a mutual loss of independence. It can't be just one way. Both sides must say to the other, I will adjust to you. I will change for you. I'll serve you even though it means a sacrifice to me. If only one party does all the sacrificing and giving and the other does all the ordering and taking, the relationship will be exploitative and will oppress and distort the lives of both people. That's what's at the heart of many broken marriages. At first sight, then, a relationship with God seems inherently dehumanizing. Surely, it will have to be one way, God's way. God, the divine being, has all the power. I must adjust to God. There's no way that God could adjust to and serve me. While this may be true in other forms of religions or beliefs in God, it is not true in Christianity. In the most radical way, God is adjusted to us in his incarnation and atonement. In Jesus Christ, he became a limited human being, vulnerable to suffering and death, 
On the cross, he submitted to our condition as sinners and died in our place to forgive us. In the most profound way, God has said to us in Christ, I will adjust to you. I will change for you. I'll serve you, though it means sacrifice for me. If he has done this for us, we can and should say the same to God and others. It's what a love relationship is all about. He loves us. He loves you. Will you love him, the one true God, in return? Our Father, we thank you for these words written so many years ago. Ringing truth today. How often I've heard, oh, the Bible isn't relevant. Oh, it remains relevant. Day after day, century after century, millennial after millennium. Lord, may we know you. One true God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. May we worship, serve, follow, and proclaim you to your glory. Amen.